HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 165 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And today, I know everyone is really tuned in to listen to the latest and greatest from Modernist Cuisine. Today, we have with us Nathan Mirvold, who really, really devoted faithful listeners will recall hearing on the show back in October of 2017 when he was in studio talking about his modernist bread book, which was really fascinating. And if you're interested in bread or baking or the history of civilization, I recommend you go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the Tech Bytes archives and go back to episode 114. It's really fascinating. There's a lot of amazing information in the modernist bread book. But today we're here to talk about food and drink, modernist cuisine photography, um, and I'm happy to say hello to Nathan, although albeit across the continent and not in studio, but it's so nice to have you back. Welcome. Well, thank you. It's great to be back under the virtual definition of back. Exactly. And I will be happy to share with you that Roberta's Pizza is alive and well and open. The ovens are on. So when you are next in Bushwick, um, open invitation to come and have pizza and, and talk about all those things, all the food and the drink. What have, what have you been up to since 2017? <laughs> well, we, uh, we wrote a big book on uh, pizza. Um, so a book called Modernist Pizza, which is not as big as Modernist Bread, but it's still an enormous book, 1,600 pages, multiple volumes, uh, all about pizza, which is a, a food phenomenon around the world. Uh, and then uh, most recently, uh, I, we published this book called Food and Drink, which is a set of uh, photographs of food uh, that I took over the last N years um, that uh, I kind of like. So I thought maybe other people would like them, too. Well, if for listeners who have not seen any of the modernist cuisine books, I really recommend that the next time you are in a bookshop or a cooking shop, 
Um, you can find them in, in different types of places. They really are beautiful. Um, to call them cookbooks, um, it, it sort of undersells uh, the, the size of the volumes, the quality of the paper, the in-depth level that um, Nathan and team have gone to in terms of like exploring just the ideas around everything beyond just making a dish. The photography is beautiful um, and very, uh, you know, vibrant and interesting. There's like just the beautiful shots of the food. But what's what was really fascinating to me about the food and drink book, focusing on the photography and the technology, you know, oftentimes when we see a, a close up photo of a strawberry or, you know, that uh, the beautiful sort of splash action liquid photography, you know, I think instinctively we just say, oh, this, this is a great photographer or someone with a great eye, or they had a camera that had really good camera speed, or mm -hmm. it was the perfect strawberry. You know, they had somebody doing very good shopping. How many, how many strawberries did you go through to get to the perfect one? But there really is a rather intense level of lighting, photography, equipment that goes behind getting to all these images. So, you know, we talk so much about technology and food on this show. This book is really almost the perfect intersection of those ideas. I would be, you know, I would be curious just to take us back to even the first modernist cuisine as you were starting to assemble this. You come from a very technical scientific background in terms of the way you look at things and research things and, and work through them and understand them. How, how did photography play initially into sort of your life as a, as a scientist and a technical person? And then how did it evolve through the process of making, you know, taking pictures of food? Because you wound up at a place today with some really fascinating like robotics and microscopic lenses and light speeds and, and all kinds of things. Okay. Well, you know, when I was a kid, uh, I loved cooking. Uh, when I was nine years old, I went to the local library, checked out all the cookbooks I could, and went home and told my mother I was going to cook Thanksgiving dinner all by myself, uh, which I did. Was that um, in November? Did you do it like in July? Because <laughs> you were just excited. <laughs> I did it early November. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, that, that that's part of the... Uh, the, the wonderful audacity of youth to think, well, hey, how hard could it be? <laughs> um, and some of the books I checked out, I remember I checked out Escoffier's book. It turned out it wasn't very useful for Thanksgiving dinner. The, uh, the, <laughs> the classic Escoffier cookbook, which is yes. not really recipes. It's more, it's, it's more conversational notes on how to make something. Yeah, he, he was fond of cook until done. <laughs> as a direction, which, of course, is great if you already know how to do it, and it's worthless if you don't. Um, but anyway, when I was a kid, I also uh, got a camera. Someone gave me a little plastic throwaway kind of camera. Uh, and then a little bit later, also around the time I was 9 or 10 years old, I uh, saw a camera at a th Salvation Army thrift store, and I bought it for $2. And it was a Contacts rangefinder. It was like the state-of-the-art camera in 1936 when that model came out. Um, uh, but it worked still. And so I was able to start taking pictures seriously. So food was a long love of mine, but so was photography. And when it came to, to do modernist cuisine, you know, our, our goal was to write a, a book that explained how cooking worked besides 
just telling you what to do. It's, it's a big divide in, in, uh, in that a, a lot of you know, topics in school try to tell you why something happened. Uh, and explain what the, what the history was, what happened th- that caused the historical leaders to do this or that, and what were the events of you know World War II, say, or some other uh, uh, time past. Uh, cookbooks instead just tell you what to do, you know, and, and a recipe will say, you know, do this, do this, do this, and if you follow those steps faithfully, and it's a good recipe, you'll get a good result. But, you know, I couldn't help but wonder, why are we doing it this way? Do you you find that today it's many of the cookbooks or articles that explain why something went wrong that actually give you the information of how it's working? Why if you whipped cream too much, it turns into butter? Or why if you do this, it it breaks the sauce or, you know, it won't emulsify? And that's... When something goes wrong is sort of where you get the backstory of why why it works and comes together as it does. Uh, absolutely, uh, and you know a lot of it is comes down to this following point: it, if all you want to do is reproduce recipes, which is perfectly fine, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But if all you want to do is reproduce existing recipes, well, then follow the directions. Uh, you don't need to know why. But if you want to do anything new, if you want to make your own dish, if you want to modify it or, or just, you know, really do something that's novel, that's when you have to know how things work. And, you know, the same thing is true in something like architecture. Uh, if you build a house and it, it works, you can keep building that same plan over and over again. It'll probably keep continuing to work. But if you're Frank Geary and you want to make this swoopy building with all these crazy curves, well, then you better really understand how buildings stand up. Otherwise, you're going to make a mistake unknowingly, and the damn building will fall down, which, of course, throughout history, it did until we really figured out the science of how buildings stand up. Uh, And the same thing is true in cooking. Cooking people develop stories about why they were doing something. Uh, you know, going back to the very first cooks, even though the recipe was telling you, do this, do this, do this, people couldn't resist adding some little extra flourishes to say why they're doing it. And the trouble is most of those are wrong. Uh, They're wrong because they were based on somebody's guess and nobody ever tested them. Uh, And so part of what we were doing in modernist cuisine is we were testing those uh, ideas. We were trying to explain some of the physics and chemistry behind how food works. And, you know, right off the bat, I might have lost part of your listeners here when I said the <laughs> words physics and chemistry. I don't think um, so. I think I think we have a pretty uh, intrepid audience when it comes to these things. They what? might not know what it is, but I think people are here to find out what it is. But anyway, I was worried about that point for my first book. And I thought, you know, if I make the book sound technical, it'll be off-putting to people. So is there a way I can try to grab their attention and get them excited about understanding why this works or how it works? Is there a way I can show them rather than just tell them? Because if I tell them, well, here's the real story of why it works, how do they know that isn't just another just-so story that I made up, right? So that's where we hit on the idea of using dramatic photographs uh, uh, and an explicit attempt to make the book 
be beautiful, but beautiful and engaging in a way that most photography of food isn't. And the idea was if we did that, maybe we could suck them in and get them intrigued. Uh, and, you know, you see this in that same idea in lots of areas. You see it in these wonderful BBC um, and other now uh, wildlife specials that are just ridiculously beautiful and fantastic slow motion and uh, incredible vantage points because they hit a camera inside a hollow tree and now the bird is making a nest inside the tree and you get to watch uh, the little babies. Uh, those kinds of things are very compelling. And so even if you didn't think you were that interested, you get sucked in. And that was my goal. So that's why photography became a first, a great part of the first modernist cuisine. Is photography and taking notes about what works and how something works and what you can adjust or change and what you can't, does that fit into a profile of research also? You know, I, I, I know many people who are cooks, professional chefs, um, you know, cookbook writers, and often when they're working on something, they're literally taking notes on, well, if I add a teaspoon of this, what happens? And then I add two teaspoons and this is what happens. And, you know, really meticulously recording it so they remember and can reproduce it later. But then that also feeds right into publishing something which explains yep. the why. Well, did, exactly. did, that come did that come naturally to you just in terms of Well, it, it's the technique of working? science. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we probably all had some high school science uh, or even uh, middle school science class where we had to take all these notes about something and measure things and write it up. And I remember doing that way back when, and I thought, well, people have already figured this out. <laughs> why, are we, why am I doing all this effort? But it, if you aren't methodical about keeping records of what you did, it's very hard to figure out afterwards what's the best way. Uh, so yeah, all of every one of our research chefs that works on the um, uh, projects uh, has a lab notebook and they write down what they're doing. Um, every now and then you discover that we get a, either a terrible result or a great result. And then you come back and you say, we weren't expecting that. <laughs> what, what happened? And, uh, you know, sometimes it's because somebody misheard their directions uh, or they measured a bunch of stuff out and they got the measurements wrong. If you didn't write down what you were doing, how, how on earth do you know? Um, we also try to measure what we uh, have as output. So a, a typical bread recipe would say you, you make the dough and then you let it, in so let it rise until it's doubled in size. Well, I was always curious about this from the time I was a kid and I first encountered it. And so I said, let's do an experiment to see how well by eye we can judge if something doubles. It turns out you can't judge it worth a damn. <laughs> and that's mostly because bowls are curved or sloping. And so what is actual a dub doubling doesn't can, may not seem like it's a doubling. Um, so a, a, another good example is uh, there are things that you do to bread, or now we're working on a book on pastry, so we're making a lot of cake. And there's things you do to make the cake fluffier. You know, one example is you're adding baking powder or leavening, or you're beating the eggs up front, or maybe you're doing both. How do you tell if you really made your cake fluffier? Well, we digitize our cakes. 
we digitized the bread book. We digitized 3,000 loaves. What does that mean, digitized? So there's these wonderful little scanners that people have made. You can buy them on Amazon or other things. They'll allow you to make a digital measurements in three dimensions of an object just by passing the scanner over it or turning the object around on a turntable. So this is essentially something you can buy on Amazon that is like Mission Impossible when they scan someone's face and then they make the latex mask. Yes, exactly. <laughs> to go in under disguise or they scan the thing to then make the key. It would be probably in green lit grids like the Matrix or something <laughs> like that. This is you what digitizing exactly. something means. Fantastic. And the future is now. <laughs> Well, it turns out those things aren't even all that expensive, and they measure down, the one we have measures to a tenth of a millimeter, so that's, um, you know, a four hundredth of an inch. So it's very, very small uh, uh, things. It's very accurate. It also helps that this way with software, you can measure the volume of a cake, even if the cake is a little bit funny shaped. You know, like a, we, we make these pound cakes, and pound cakes often... Uh, have this hump in the middle. And that's part of having a pound cake. You, you, you want the pound cake to have this cool hump in the middle of it, um, which depends a little bit on the pan. It depends on several things. But uh, how do you measure the volume accurately of this curvy thing with a hump in the middle? Or how do you measure the volume accurately if you're making a, something like a croissant, you know, which is a irregularly shaped object? Uh, if you have something that is... Um, a perfect rectangle, okay, you could probably measure that volume with a ruler. But anyway, so, so we digitize stuff and, and use computer models. Um, where, where, then, did that, where did that idea come from, though? I mean, my, my question, the question that I want to ask and just listening to you talk about things and one of the you know questions just about the specificity of the photographic equipment you were using you know, how many things that you're using are just coming off the shelf that you're just ordering from Amazon? How many things are you customizing? But then in terms of, you know, the digitizer that you can buy online, I've not heard of restaurants and chefs and pastry people using digitizers <laughs> to to check their accuracy. And that's not to say, I, I know a number of, of chefs and, and cooking and pastry people who are very hyper-precise. And there are certain things like cooking, you know, uh, sous vide or with immersion circulators and different things like that that require measured precision. Where, when did you get the? Where did the thought come from that we're going to digitize things to measure volume and and to track? I mean, that's really? not something that I've read. That's really out there. You're certainly not opening up a food magazine and on the you know in the back. <laughs> In the yes. back appendix where they have a list of like, you know, 20 things you need in your home kitchen. One of them is not digitizer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think of all of the undoubtedly thousands of people who buy these digitizers, I think we're the only people that put bread and cake underneath it and, <laughs> <laughs> and make digital models of cake. Um, it, you know, it's because I wanted to have a reliable way of determining the volume. Uh, and also the shape, because sometimes you have recipes that will characteristically make something that has a weird shape to it or some other thing. Um, it, you, if a cake uh, or a bread recipe is uh, has a certain kind of instability in it, it'll often do what a baker calls a blowout, which is 
it will be regularly shaped and then it'll have a big bulge sticking out, almost like it looks like a tumor almost in some direction. And some recipes characteristically produce them. Well, how do you track that? So to me, a digitizer was a great example where uh, there was technology that was invented for a totally different purpose. Yet we could apply it here. And by applying it here, we could add a precision to our uh, recipes that, uh, and to our whole testing procedure that you just don't find any other way. Is a digitizer something that you were using in other parts of your life, or some? I, I mean, it's obviously something that well, you were aware of. It, it also calls to mind the way oh. people are familiar with different tools, and then they use them in a in a different way. The microplane comes to mind yes. immediately, which is something somebody, a chef, a long time ago got in a hardware store and then started using in the kitchen. And that whole microplane line of Graders yes, and things are, like that uh, is fabulous, fabulous graders. Yeah, yeah. new use um, coming from the hardware store into the kitchen. So, you were using digitizers for something else, or you had one at home, and you said, "Hey, let's give this a try." So it turns out the microplane came from a wood rasp, and as a kid, I was using a wood rasp and thought it would work well with cheese, and I actually started doing it with cheese. I'm not the one, the cause of it because I never told anybody else, mm. but I thought those were fantastic for cheese long before they were available in a kitchen store. Um, you know, I think that part of the magic of technology is that you can uh, take ideas that were uh, in one area and apply them in a totally different area. Uh, and in this case, I was familiar that with the fact that digitizers existed because we have 3D printers. We also have these CNC machine tools. And What's a CNC machine tool? <laughs> computer numerically controlled machine tool. So this is a tool like a drill press or a lathe or a milling machine, which rather it, the old days, those machines were operated by, and still are sometimes operated by a skilled human who's turning little cranks to, to uh, move the machine or move the, the piece of work that you're wor working on to make a very precise part. Uh, but with a CNC machine, what you do is you write a computer program effectively. Um, uh, most of the users don't do it by writing a program directly. What they do is they use a CAD program and they make some very complicated part. And then you give that part to the software and the software figures out how to use all of the precision of the machine and different drill bits or tools uh, to make this part. But how do you get the part in the first place? Or a 3D printing is an even simpler example. In 3D printing, you can just give it directly a 3D model and it'll make something. But how did you get that something to begin with? Well, you could generate it in a 3D modeling program, that's one way. But if you wanted to replicate a physical object, well, that's where digitizers come in. Right. And so there was this big market for doing that. And uh, it got so people were making digitizers. Initially, they'd be fantastically expensive because they'd only be used for very exotic purposes. But over time, they got to be very affordable. But it, it's just an example of trying to think about how does modern technology help us make a better cookbook? And here's admittedly a weird one. Uh, there's nothing from the digitizer that goes directly into the recipe, but it does help us measure the recipe. It helps us judge, are we really doing something that added value here or are we just fooling ourselves? The process of, of putting the recipe together and the final product of the book, the, the process 
sounds as important, if not even more important than the final outcome of the recipe and the adjacent. Oh, absolutely. Is, is the process itself the thing that you're really interested in? Is that the thing that's the most engaging and fun to do? Does that take a, things take a lot much longer time because you're, you're MacGyvering digitizers and <laughs> things like that to, you know, just see how it's working? Well, I've never claimed that we make the most efficient uh, cookbooks in the sense of the time it takes to write the cookbook or the amount of effort it takes to write the cookbook. Uh, you know, we, we tend to uh, be over the top on how much uh, effort we put on it. Uh, and this is one example of that. Um, you know, I think that the process is important because that's what gives you some confidence in the results. Uh, if you're just messing around and you're not recording things and you're not measuring what you do, it's very easy to fool yourself. And when I say that there's lots of stories that you see in, uh, well, cookbooks, but also in professional cookbooks, also in uh, even textbooks on food science, there's lots of stories that are just wrong stories. It's because people did fool themselves. It's the process of dotting the I's, crossing the T's, but also thinking, is there some other way we can measure this? Is there some other experiment we can do to prove that something works the way we think it does versus it works a totally different way? I think it's also a question of time and opportunity. You know, I think there's probably a lot of uh, food professionals, food enthusiasts, scientists, uh, you know, people who are just really interested in that, who are going to buy the book and be interested and in, in following along the story and discovering the new technology. But it's quite amazing and exceptional that um, you have the time and the resources to really just follow everything to the end, to keep asking the questions of how does this work? Why? What if we did this? What if we did that? And then be able to figure it out. I think there are probably lots of chefs and pastry people who would love to do that. But at the end of the day, the practical sense of it would be great to digitize all the croissant, but we have to have like 5,000 ready to go to sell for the weekend. <laughs> so that's a little bit of a problem, but maybe we'll do it. We'll, maybe we'll do our best. Have you ever thought about um, having a school or, or stages or, uh, you know, like a little modernist cuisine, you know, weekend boot camp or something like that, where people can come and, and work and experience and have projects or, you know, do something like that? Oh, we've... Because, I mean, it's it's access also to the time and the equipment and the space and the idea, you know, sort of like a camp for modernist culinary folk. Well, we we have, we do have stagiaires from time to time. Um, uh, and we certainly have had people say, oh, you ought to have a school or you ought to have this summer camp or you ought to have something like this. And it's a great idea in some sense. It's just, it's yet another thing that takes tons of time and effort. And uh, as it stands, we put so much time and effort into doing the books that trying to take on an even larger mission is something that no matter how ambitious I am, I still at some point say, hmm, you <laughs> Maybe haven't figured we out finish how to, the book. You haven't figured out how to get more time yet. 
<laughs> Correct. Well, and you know, there's all these pressing issues. We're trying to understand cookies and cake and all kinds of other stuff right now. And so shouldn't we be working on that rather than working on communicating the ideas that we had uh, that we found in previous books, for example, or, or earlier in our process. Um, and of course, part of the goal of the books is to communicate those things. So it's not like we're doing it and not communicating what we find. We communicate it in great detail in these multi-thousand page books. <laughs> Which are wonderful objects and things to have and, and look through and take your time with. Um, there's a, a luxury about them in terms of being able to have that information and sit with it and, you know, read it and come back to it. Um, really, you know, the, the tactile, physical aspect of the book, so wonderful. And in this digital era, and certainly digitizing everything and, you know, digital books and ebooks and uh, video versions and things like that, how it's obviously important to you to publish in paper you know, the current book is 7.4 pounds. I have a copy of Modernist Cuisine, all five volumes in the plexiglass box on my bookshelf. That weighed in at 40 pounds, 50 pounds, something like that? 48. 48 pounds. <laughs> it's heavy. <laughs> it's very impressive. You know, with all of the digital technology that we have today and paper, so, paper is important? Well... You know, I, I have I have people in the tech industry who, who basically ask me, you traitorous bastard, why are you making paper books? You should be making digital books. Um, because, of course, I have this long history in technology. I was chief technology officer at Microsoft. Uh, I'm, you know, software and, and the whole uh, virtual world is a big love of mine. How come I make physical books? And part of the reason is I loved physical books long before I ever met a computer. Um, but another part is that it, I think it's very appropriate to the topic. See, food isn't a virtual thing. It's a physical thing. Um, you could ask one of these generative AI programs to make a picture of an ideal turkey dinner, and they almost certainly could. But uh, the goal of a cookbook is to help you cook actual food that you actually eat. And part of that experience is nutritional. You know, we, we eat to refuel our bodies. But part of it is also aesthetic. Um, it is nice when the food is beautiful looking on the plate. It's not more important than taste, but it's certainly part of the whole deal. Um, in the, uh, you know, one of the principles we have is that every dish is worthy of uh, your complete attention uh, in making the perfect version thereof. Uh, it's not, oh, there's fine cuisine and that's the only worthy recipes. No, everything is. So we're lavishing all, the same amount of effort on a croissant and on a chocolate chip cookie um, because they're both really valid. But a lot of that goes to physicality. And you know, if you went to a, a fine restaurant like, say, the French Laundry in uh, Yountville in California, uh, arguably one of the best restaurants in the world, if they served the same food by just throwing it onto paper plates and letting you fend for yourself <laughs> in the kitchen, 
it would still be really delicious, but it would also be a different experience. So I thought, well, why don't we try to make something that has beautiful photos? Uh, and that we, while we're telling people, oh, use the best ingredients and measure things accurately so you can make the best possible example of this dish, why would we do that and put it on cheap paper with bad ink? Um, especially when you can find just amazingly good paper and uh, we use special inks in the book which allow you to record a much wider range of colors than a regular book. And it costs a little bit more to do it, but I think that that is worth it for the same reason I think it's worth having ripe fruit, not, um, you know, pathetic, green, hard fruit <laughs> to serve. It's, a, it's, it's the same kind of aesthetic. We we absolutely eat with all of our senses. You know, I, I recall when you were on the show back in 2017 and we were talking about the bread book, the smell of the breaking bread was one of the initial inspirations and loves that you had for bread same thing when we're in front of a, a in front of a dish or in front of a restaurant or in a store all of the senses come into play in terms of what we like what we don't like the desire you know um but you know as you talk as you talk about this and you then throw out a, a small detail of using special ink to print to get a wider range of color you know, it really made me think of one of, you know, of a super, you know, super three-star Michelin, five-star best restaurant in the world. You know, the chefs and the people who work in these types of restaurants at this level, they are so good and so exceptional and stand apart from their competitors and colleagues because they have this voracious, almost insane attention to detail and once they drill down on one level of detail, it's like, well, how much further can we go? What's the next thing we can do? This is, you know, this is a great, this is a great croissant that we made. What kind of butter did we use? Can we buy a better butter? Can we make a better butter? Where are we getting the milk from? Can we get better milk to make the better butter to make the, where's this from? Yep. Where's that from? Can we, what kind of flour did we use? Can we get better flour? Can we get better grains? Can we mill them? Can we do and so once you conquer one detail, what are the next ones? And again, it's just the, I, I guess the, is, is it the love, the interest, the passion? Is it solving a puzzle? Is it, is it going all the way to the very end or as far as you can go that sort of prompts that what next, what next way of thinking it's all and those working? Things. It's all those things. You know, it, um, once you get started, uh, you know, and you say, well, gee, let's have decent paper so that the picture doesn't bleed through. So you, you, you know, when you are look at one picture, you're not seeing an image of the picture on the following page, you know, that's going through because the paper is so thin. Well, okay, you fix that. And then you say, well, okay, let's look at how well we're reproducing colors. And it turns out that the inks that printers normally use can't cover the widest range of very saturated colors. So it turns out your pictures of tomatoes don't look good. Well, that's bullshit. I, if I go to the effort of taking a good picture of a tomato, <laughs> you know, we'd like to have people see it in as good a rendition as we reasonably can. Now, you also have to know when to draw the line. If Earth didn't hadn't invented those inks, 
I'm not sure I would have stopped writing the cookbook just to invent those inks. Um, although but, there's things well, we've done that are almost that crazy. Uh, spe speaking of drawing the line, though, is there something where you said, oh, my gosh, we could try this. And then everyone paused in the in the lab and said, let's not do that. <laughs> have you have you had your toe on 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 a on a theoretical line about what you should do next and then decide that that's just too much too expensive um, too much time doesn't exist we don't have time too crazy uh sure we try to i mean and not something that was unsuccessful but something that you said we're just we're not going to open that box or we're not going to open that door that's just too much so we, we try to scope our projects so that it's not completely insane um, uh, because we do want to get them done and move on to the next project. So we do attempt to have some version of pragmatism uh, apply. Uh, and that means that there are there's ideas we have for photos that we don't do because it would take months and months and months to get a single photo. Weeks to get a single photo, every now and then I'm willing to do. A special trip to get a special photo, oh sure, we're totally up for that. Um, but it, you have to have some idea of what's around. So if, if people didn't have reasonable priced di digitizers, and by reasonable priced, I mean, you know, at the time we, we did it well, we had to build it ourselves largely, and it, it's, you know, if things cost what a countertop appliance to, to maybe a full-size appliance cost, uh, you know, maybe that's worth doing. If it's 10 or 100 times that, it probably isn't worth doing. So we, we try to have some idea of that. Um, it, and there are ideas that you could try. You know, we, we, we have a lot of analytical equipment to analyze uh, what uh, goes on in a uh, in the kitchen? Uh, sometimes I'll uh, I'll see like a one of these forensic shows on TV where they're using some super exotic technology. And is I that think, is hmm. that a real forensic show or a drama forensic show? Oh, drama friends. Either way, right? Either well, way, but mostly with, it's with the drama, drama you ones. have license to invent. <laughs> Precisely. You know, and so, you know, they're always using mass spectrometers on these shows now. I think one of them started using a mass spec, and now they all think they need to have a mass spectrometer. I don't think a mass spectrometer is, really solves very many crimes, to be <laughs> honest. Um, but, you know, you think, well, gee, do we need a mass spec? Um, think, no, we don't need a mass spec. It would be too hard to do all the things necessary to use it and so forth. Um, but you probably are using a spectrometer for the pastry because of the sugar. Well, we, we use ordinary spectrometers for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I'm going to ask Nathan a question and then we're, give, I'm going to give him the commercial break to think about it. Although it probably is at the top of his head. What is the technology, speaking of, that you don't have or couldn't build or doesn't exist that you thought, oh, if only we had a... And while he thinks about that, we're going to take a break and find out who is sponsoring this show. TechBite started in January of 2015. Nathan was on in October of 2017. This is episode 290 in 2023. We've been on the air for that long. 
Heritage Radio has been on the air for coming up on 15 years, and we've done it as a 501c3 nonprofit with the support of our members, many of whom are listeners like you, grants, and underwriters like this one. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. You are listening to Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we look at the intersection of food and technology. And today, that intersection is a book called Food and Drink, Modernist Cuisine Photography. And we are talking with Nathan Mirvold, who is the founder of Modernist Cuisine, which is a culinary lab cookbook production shop, photography, gallery, invention, almost, do people say Willy Wonka quite a bit perhaps or something? (laughs) Oh yeah. I get that Willy Wonka thing a lot. If you are interested in looking at the book, purchasing the book, looking at the catalog of books and the work that they're doing, go to modernistcuisine.com. Follow them on Instagram at modcuisine. Um, The book is spectacular. It's breathtaking. It is 200 beautiful photos. It is about the photography, how they did it, different categories, different pieces of equipment, lighting, robotics, microscopes, Um, really fascinating. Uh, And if you have the books, you're interested in photography or science or visual arts, um, all of those things, it's, it's really interesting. And it's a pleasure to sit with something that beautiful and solid and turn the pages and think about it and come back to it. You know, at one of the last chapters in the book talks about portraiture of photography. And it was very interesting to me that the ideas that were talked about in terms of portraiture of artists and people and paintings and how portraiture is such a classic traditional art form throughout time. And you talked about portraiture of food in the book. And there's indeed, you know, a section about food portraiture. What is the difference in your mind or as you articulate it between a portrait of a strawberry and just the photo of the strawberry in the recipe? Because it's a very almost uh, esoteric idea. Oh, absolutely. It's an esoteric idea. But, you know, in the case of portraiture, of humans, which is where the the term comes from, the idea is that you are making a picture that's not only a record of 
the person, which of course a mug shot or the picture on your driver's license could be that. Um, but it's also something that expresses something deeper about it. And uh, I, I, I sort of came up with the idea of calling it a food portrait because uh, a lot of food photography, the, the food is not playing a decisive role. It's part of a set piece. You know, if you, the, in November, tons of magazines will have a cover or an art big spread inside the magazine of a Thanksgiving dinner and they'll have the turkey and they'll have various other things there. And they're trying to create this set piece that evokes the notion of tradition and family and so forth. It's not really about the turkey. It's about Thanksgiving. Um, and uh, part of this goes a little bit to a fact that I feel we, of course, see food. Um, we see food several times a day. Otherwise, you get really hungry, right? So, of course, we see food, but do we really look at it? Do we really appreciate it? And so part of the idea of a food portrait is, to use the example of a strawberry, I'll show you a picture of a strawberry that shows you a strawberry in a way that you probably have never seen before. And part of that might be technological because I'm using special lenses to photograph it super up close and special techniques to say, even though I'm photographing it up close, it's all in focus. So a little bit of it is a technological uh, issue, but it's also just saying, hey, this strawberry is worthy of being a uh, the star. It's about the strawberry. And so it really is the, um, it, it's a different way of saying that, oh yeah, there's a strawberry which is um, playing a role in a different sort of a picture. And it, it's the difference between uh, a set of early paintings, which were primarily on uh, religious or mythological scenes. So, uh, a period in Western art where most paintings were of scenes from the Bible, or if they weren't of scenes from the Bible, they were scenes from mythology or other stories or historical events. And there were people in them, but those people were playing a role. You know, there was, uh, you know, you, you, you I think it was um, St. Benedict is the one who was tied to a tree and shot full of arrows. You see, all, mm -hmm. you, you see that, you, you go to a, any big museum in Europe, um, and of course there's plenty of museums in the United States that have this also, and you go through the, um, the art of a certain period of time, maybe from 1200 up to uh, 1500 and even much later, you see a whole lot of this guy with the arrows in him, okay? <laughs> he's, he's there. But this isn't really about the person who posed for the artist so that the artist could make that painting. No. It's the mythology, the idea, the virtue, the lesson. It's, it's the idea. It's, it's got a pedagogical element. It's got a spiritual element. A lot of those religious pictures were basically like graphic novels because most of the congregation in the church couldn't read. So it was through those stories that um, they could 
take a, a biblical notion that was read to them and it would come to life in the in those pictures that's very different than if you make a portrait of someone which did come in art uh, later where that portrait is trying to capture something very specific about that person and because the person isn't you know Jesus or a saint or um, you know a, a famous sinner or some other religious character they are their own character it changed the nature of art the the portraiture and the expressiveness of the portraiture became a huge thing um, and so some of that you're never going to get with a picture of a strawberry or a tomato but some of it you can and so uh, I think part of the idea of food portraiture is just the audacity to say, I'm going to make this one weird-looking strawberry or uh, or perfect-looking, but it doesn't even have to be perfect. It could be misshapen. But it, it, this one strawberry or tomato is going to be the subject of my picture, period. No other set piece. There's no other stuff around it. And, you know... It, you might say, well, why the hell are you lavishing all that effort on a strawberry or a tomato? And there was a point in time when people would have said the same thing about a portrait of a common person. They would have said, why are you lavishing all this effort on this picture of this ordinary person? You should be painting, you know, God, God's mom, the Virgin Mary, uh, you know, that, that sort of uh, thing, or a, a famous scene from the Iliad or a famous scene from history, that's what you should be painting. And fortunately in art, people said, no, actually I kind of like the idea of, of having the ordinary person, but making the picture worth looking at anyway. Well, it is definitely celebrating the ordinary, the day-to-day, -day, the people, you know, us, who we are, the things we see, that those things have value and you don't need to be a mythological hero or heroine. I think it's also interesting, you know, to think about it. We're talking about it now contextually in terms of, you know, civilization and societal like cues and expressions. But on the culinary side, there are some cultures um, and what's coming to mind while you were talking about elevating the single strawberry. Why would you do that? You know, in a, in a, in a culinary tradition like Kaiseki in Japan, where it's hyper specific and single ingredient based on very specific times of year as well. So that strawberry, you're only going to celebrate it once a year at a very specific time when it's at its peak harvest. And that might only be for a week or two weeks. And you could very well just have a very simple thing where you sit, where there's a single strawberry set down in front of you. And it's almost the same idea. Why would we put so much attention to something that simple or such a single idea? And it's also, I think, the transient nature of it when we talk about cooking and ingredients and food that, you know, some things they just, you know, the cherry blossom, the white asparagus, the ramp, the morel, the truffle, all those types of things, you know, very simple, but it's the attention or perhaps the detail that elevates them and has them sort of transcend the ordinary. It's an interesting idea. I think to think about food, the, uh, in the book, the talk about the robotics and the special lights and the, um, microscopic lenses and all those well, types of things. It's just, it's just fun 
and fantastical. And I love talking about robots on the show. Um, but the food portraiture was so interesting to me, especially when I think about it in the context of you have a gallery and the photographic work. Um, just, just really an interesting idea of portraits versus just a photo. Um, I like that very much. Um, but we're about to run out of time. As I knew that we would, um, I could probably have a series where I talk to you, you know, once a week for an hour, at least for the, you know, the last on in 2017, we probably could have been talking, you know, weekly between now and then covering <laughs> all the things that you're doing and now, you know, cakes and cookies. Um, but before the break, I asked you, is there a piece of technology that you wish you had that you could invent that doesn't exist to do a thing that you, you wish you could test, so, sure. look, um, capture? What's, I mean, what's your what, dream gadget, Nathan? Well, uh, one of the gadgets I did build is a snowflake microscope. It's a microscope dedicated just to photographing snowflakes. And those snowflake pictures are in the book, uh, Food and Drink, because, of course, most of the uh, water that we drink here in Seattle, and in fact, most places, in the, at least in the northern hemisphere, uh, all the water you have in the summer fell with snow. So... That, that that snow is not only is it beautiful, but it's super important uh, for your your very existence. Um, well, I'm building a second generation snowflake microscope. It uses a super exotic technique, and it's right on the cutting edge of being possible. And we've been working on it for off and on for a year, and it's not there yet. But um, you know, as it stands, I've taken the highest resolution photos of snowflakes ever taken. Uh, and now I'm going to try to up that again by maybe another factor of 10 in resolution. Uh, and it may work or it may not work. Um, it's using the super exotic techniques and microscopy that uh, other people in invented the basic idea. Uh, I'm going to make the first practical uh, version of it that you could take outside in the middle of winter when it's you know way below zero outside because that's when you get the good pictures of snowflakes. Amazing. Well, I want to thank Nathan Mirvold for coming on the show and talking with us about all his technology in his new book, Food and Drink, Modernist Cuisine Photography. You can find it at modernistcuisine.com. You can find them on Instagram at modcuisine. Um, so many things to talk about. We didn't even get to talk about what's happening coming up. How long do you think it will be before the cake and cookie book comes out? Uh, well, it's basically all, all forms of pastries. So it's not just cakes and cookies. Um, you know, I'm much better at writing these books and predicting how long they take. Uh, and of course, if I did accurately predict how long they take, I might not do them. <laughs> so, you know, we don't tend to give a deadline, but it'll be another couple of years at least. Well, maybe we can have you back before then. I would hate to think that we have to let another five years go by before you come on the show. Uh, a question that I wanted to ask, which we're out of time for, and maybe you can come back while you're working on the pastry book is, Oftentimes, people say that pastry and baking is really chemistry and science, much more so than cooking. But I bet you would have maybe a different opinion about that. I do. <laughs> as you say, that's a story for another day. Exactly. Maybe we can have that discussion another time. Um, again, thank you so much for spending the hour with us. Those of you listening at home, um, definitely check out his books at the bookstore or at the library. 
And if you like this show, go back and listen to episode 114, the original Nathan Mirvold episode. If you really like the show, come back once a week. If you love it and you think it's important for us to tell these stories and record them, go to heritageradionetwork.org, click the beating heart, and make a donation. Maybe give us what you, you know, spent at the coffee and donut shop today. It'll help us keep the lights on and the mics hot and make more radio. I'm Jennifer Leutzi, and this is Tech Bytes. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.